Welcome to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Today's message will be brought to us by one of the men in our church that serve in the teaching ministry. So let's take our Bibles and prepare our hearts as one of the men in our church bring forth God's truth to us today. Sooner or later, it's going to happen to you. Someday calamity will come crashing into your life. Sometimes there is a forewarning. Sometimes it just explodes underneath your feet. But we will all take a turn at it. Life can go from zero to panic attack in just seconds. Wrenching from your grasp everything resembling normal. And the question is, in that moment... What will you do? On the evening of February 25th, 2007, Christian author Philip Yancey was driving his Ford Explorer from Los Alamos, New Mexico, to his home in Denver, Colorado, after a busy weekend of speaking. And he was thinking about his wife as he was driving along and uh, the wedding that was coming up of one of their friends that they were planning on attending in a few days. And in the fading light, he didn't notice a sharp left curve ahead of him. Traveling at 65 miles an hour, he tried to negotiate it when his vehicle began to fishtail. Yancey described that moment by saying, I tried to correct, but as best as I can recollect what happened, my tire slipped off of the edge of the asphalt into the dirt. That started the Explorer rolling over sideways at least three times and probably more. And amazingly, the vehicle stopped right side up. All of the windows were blown out, the skis, the boots, the laptop computer, and suitcases were strewn over 100 feet or so in the dirt. When the emergency personnel arrived, they strapped him to a rigid bodyboard and immobilized his head for the hour-long drive back to town. The early images of Yancey's neck revealed paralyzed 3C or C3 vertebrae. The emergency room surgeon told him that the break didn't touch his spinal cord, but likely punctured critical arteries that serve the brain. Just hours before, Philip Yancey was on his way home to his wife of 37 years, and now he was alone in a busy emergency room of a small community hospital wondering if he will ever live beyond the next few moments. Robert Wolgenmurth wrote in his book, Seven Things You Better Have Nailed Down Before All Hell Breaks Loose. He said, that's how it happens. You're going through your ordinary life with its predictable rhythms when suddenly you're sideswiped by a crisis. You hear the ambulance siren as it grows louder and louder, and you've heard that sound many times before, but this time it's heading towards your house. And the moment seems surreal, disjointed from any reality. Things that were important just moments before are 
completely irrelevant now. He said the telephone rings and you answer with no idea what is about to happen in your life. And right after you say hello, the caller tells you the news. And you stand there in body-numbing disbelief as you hear that one of the most cherished people in the world to you is gone. And there wasn't even time to say goodbye. There's a knock on the door. And you open to a man who says your name and then he hands you a legal document and a clipboard for you to sign, acknowledging your receipt of the document. You can feel the time stand still as you take the pen and you sign your name. You knew that your marriage was in trouble, but you had no idea. You scribble your name and you shut the door and you can hardly breathe. Now, some of you haven't had one of these ripping experiences yet, but what are you going to do when the bottom does drop out in your life? Some of you have probably lived through stories or similar stories like this. You know that scene of desperation, so gut-wrenching that you can't even breathe. There's nothing that you can do about what's happening. And so you feel, you feel weak, you feel vulnerable, you feel afraid. What are you going to do? Where did your mind take you? Was it a free fall, or did you have something to hold on to in that moment? So someday, trauma will walk right up and sock each one of us right in the teeth. And these are the times when you and I need a rock-solid thing that, that will not change. And we need them nailed down before that crisis ever comes. As you will have in those defining moments, what all you will have in those defining moments is what you had before that crisis hit you. So let me ask you, what's the most important truth that you ever heard? What one overarching thought commands every dimension of your life and thinking between now and the day that you breathe your last. You see, until we get this first thing nailed down, the inevitable crisis that will come into our lives will be our undoing. So fix this in your, in your life, though you your, your, your purpose, through that, your purpose will be defined and your peace will be certain. Now, biblically, to say it like the psalmist said, the Lord, he is God. That's it. Pure and simple, right? That's what we need. We need to fix ourselves on the fact that the Lord, he is God. Now, in North America, giving assent and to the existence of God really in the past has no, been no really big deal. In fact, over the years, the polls have repeatedly reported the same thing that around 90% of us say that we believe in God. But when we suddenly 
when we're suddenly pushed over that edge of our comfort zone into chaos, our easy claims often prove hollow. Not so for a man in the Old Testament by the name of Isaiah. When he faced a personal crisis in his life, his testimony and actions show us a man who had this truth nailed down. I'd like for you to turn in your Bibles with me tonight to Isaiah chapter 6. Very familiar passage of scripture. Tonight we're going to look at the first eight verses, and in fact, in a couple weeks on a Sunday morning during Sunday school, I'm going to give kind of a sequel to this message on Sunday morning and cover all the things that I don't have time to cover tonight. But what we see here in, in, in chapter 6 are some very important truths. In verse 1 down through verse 4, let's just read that far right now. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the doors moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. The first phrase defines the crisis for Isaiah. And not only for Isaiah, but for all of Judah which was the southern kingdom of the now divided Israel. King Uzziah, who had ruled over Judah for 52 years, was dead. And the throne of David was, was vacant at the, at the worst possible time in history. Rumors of mighty Assyria rise to power had been circulating for years. Stories of their, their bulldozing armies traveling on the wind. And now Assyria, sensing the moment with Judah, is on the march, drawing nearer and nearer as Judah is reeling from the death of their king. Everyone was preoccupied with the, the world news and the updates on Assyria. Dread and terror seemed to crawl up inside of every citizen's heart. Isaiah's world was falling apart. But then something happened. Then he saw God for who he is. And he never mentions the king again. So what does he see? What does he say about God? And what do we need to know today in our lives that will help us in those moments when the crisis comes crashing down on our life? Tonight I want to begin a series of five special messages on being passionate. Being passionate about these, these five things. There are five main reasons that we ex exist as a church. The five things we need to be passionate about is worship and ministry, evangelism, discipleship, and fellowship. Those are the five things. 
That's what we're going to talk about each Wednesday night. Our heart's cry is that God give us a great passion for each of these five areas. And so we begin tonight by talking about worship. Worship in the presence of a holy God. And I am reminded today of a classic devotional book by A.W. Tozer, a book, a book that I would highly recommend uh, for you to read entitled, The Pursuit of God. Tozer was a godly man who died in early in the 60s. He was a minister who, who authored some 40 books and one of the hallmarks of his ministry was his desire that the church be engaged in true biblical worship of God. So Tozer was highly critical of what passed in his day for worship in so many of the American churches. For example, he said this, and this is back in the 60s. He said, it is now common practice in most evangelical churches to offer the people, especially the young people, a maximum of entertainment and a minimum of serious instruction. It is scarcely poss uh, po possible in most places to get anyone to attend the meeting where the only attraction is God. And one can only conclude that God's professed children are bored with him, for they must be wooed to a ministry, with a, with, to a, min, a meeting with a stick of striped candy in the form of religious movies, games, and refreshments. Listen to that again. He said, one can only conclude that God's professed children are bored with him. Imagine being bored with God. They're bored with him, for they must be wooed to a meeting with a stick of striped candy. Kent Hughes, for many years, pastored the college church in Wheaton, Illinois, and he echoed Tozer's earlier concerns in his own books, The Discipline of a Godly Man. And Hughes wrote this, he said, the unspoken but increasingly common assumption of today's Christendom is that worship is primarily for us to meet our needs. Such worship services are entertainment focused and the worshipers are uncommitted spectators who are silently grading the performance. And I'm afraid that those statements are too true of far too many evangelical churches in our land even today. So as people enter into the sanctuary every Sunday, they may well they might as well be given a scorecard when they come in in order to rate the performance because that's what it has become in most churches today. People perform and the audience rates the performance. They rate the preaching, they rate the singing, they rate, they, they, they rate the musicians, the technology, the clothes that people are wearing. They even rate the heating and air conditioning in the sanctuary. Everything gets a score. Ask people to define worship, and most will tell you something about what happens in the sanctuary of the church that they attend. They'll tell you about the kind of music that's played, 
whether it's fast or slow or contemporary or traditional. They'll tell you about the preachers, whether he's funny or engaging. They will tell you about the convenient time that they meet or, or how the schedule was, was uh, able to fit into your busy week and so forth. But in most cases, God is never even mentioned. I believe that in our, in our passage tonight, Isaiah will help us to recover biblical worship in the church. And one of the reasons I so strongly believe this text to be an appropriate text to teach us about worship is because it doesn't even mention the things that we usually hear when worship is defined today. You will not read here in the text about a conveniently scheduled church service. You will not read here about an engaging 30-minute sermon. We don't have much to worry about on that on Sunday mornings, Pastor, so we're, we're in good shape so far. So, <laughs> I love your preaching. I do. I love it. <laughs> You'll not even read about music here. And those things, many of them, can be good in and of themselves, in, in certain places, but really when you think about true worship, they have very little to do with true worship. Matt Redman is a contemporary Christian artist who wrote a book entitled The Unquenchable Worshiper. In the eighth chapter of his book, he writes about how God inspired the words of one of his songs, The Heart of Worship. And Redmond said that, that he wrote that song after an experience in his church. He said that their church had gotten to the point where they had become spiritually dry. The music, he said, was good, but it was only the sound of professionals. He said they had begun to rely too much on the performance of music and too little upon God. I'm afraid that's happening in way too many churches today. And so one day he said that their pastor decided that the church would strip away all of the musical instruments for a season. He said there was no sound system to be seen. There were no instruments. There was, there was nobody that, that was standing up there to lead the worship. The church was led to think about what they were bringing every Sunday as an offering to God. He said, in time, the church learned to bring their hearts to God and offer their heart to God. And so Redmond writes, stripping away, stripping everything away, we slowly started to rediscover the heart of worship. He said, the song of our heart had caught up with the songs of our lips. And so Redmond wrote about what happened when the music fades and all is stripped away. And he says, I'm coming back to the heart of worship because it's all about you, Lord. It's all about God. It, has, it really has nothing to do with us. Though we would think that we come to worship because we want to get something out of the service. But biblical worship is not primarily about what the church today calls worship styles or worship times or worship schedule. And so I want to talk to you tonight about what happens when worship is authentic, when worship is true, and when worship is biblical. What does this worship look like? What happens when worship is biblical? 
Well, first of all, when worship is biblical, we will commune with the holy God. And that's what he says there in verse one, in the year that the king Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord setting upon a throne high and lifted up a holy God. That's the first thing that gets your attention in the first few verses of this chapter, that God is a holy God. And Isaiah tells us that his encounter with God happened in the year that King Uzziah died. That year was 740 BC. Now, if we were to have a conversation with uh, Isaiah, he probably would have said, you know, I wanna tell you something that happened to me today. In fact, it was in the year 740 BC, and I'll never forget what happened that day. Have you ever had those experiences in your life where something happens and you never forget that day? You never forget what happened. You never forget what you were doing on that day. He said, I saw also the Lord setting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Isn't that quite an experience? <laughs> I don't think I'd ever forget that either. And Isaiah continues describing his encounter in verse two, when he said, above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. Now, seraphim is a plural form of, of a seraph, and a seraph is an angelic kind of a, a being that was created by God to glorify himself. And so our minds fail us to fully appreciate exactly what these creatures look like. The word seraphim is literally the burning one. These heavenly creatures remind us of the burning glory of God. I'm afraid that in many of our churches and even in many of our individual lives that we've become buddy-buddy with God and we don't see him as holy and high and lifting up and, and we don't see his burning glory like we should see it. And as a result of that, we don't worship him the way that we should worship him. And what the seraphims do with their wings is also symbolic. Isaiah said that with twain he covered his face. That symbolized the utter purity of God. That to gaze upon God is a bit like looking into the pure sunlight. Isaiah says with twain he covered his feet. That action symbolized the, the humility of those heavenly creatures. And so the covering of their eyes and the covering of their feet, we dare not look upon God. We dare not stand in the presence of God. He is a holy God. It is the holiness of God that we see here. In verses three and four, one cried unto another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the doors moved at the voice of him that cried and the house was filled with smoke. The Lord God here is described as holy, holy, holy. And that word holy is repeated three times for emphasis. The, the, the Hebrew way to underscore something in their writing was to repeat it for emphasis. So it was one thing to say that he was holy. It was another thing altogether to say holy, holy. And it was still another thing to say that he was holy, holy, holy. Now, seven times out of every 12 references to God's name in the, whole, in the Old Testament contains the word holy. 
And the point of each of these winged creatures is that God is utterly holy in all of his attributes. It's important for us to understand that holiness is really the chief attribute of God. We would like to say that the, that, 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 that the chief attributes of God is that he's a loving God. And a loving God wouldn't do this, would he? And a loving God wouldn't do that. But his chief attribute is his holiness. It's important for us to, to, to understand that. Because as the seraphims cried out, they didn't cry out, love, love, love. They didn't cry out, mercy, mercy, mercy. They cried out, holy, holy, holy. Why? Because more than anything else, God is a holy God. Holiness is his chief attribute. It's the main thing that makes God who he is. Now think of the colors of a rainbow. When you think of a rainbow and you see that rainbow in the sky, you see the red and the orange and the, and the yellows and the, and the greens and the blues and the indigo and the violets and, and all those things. And of all of those colors, they are embodied in pure white light. You know that because when you take a prism and you allow the pure white light to shine through that prism, the prism separates that light into all of those different colors. It's white, pure white light going in, and it's all these colors coming out. The holiness of God is like pure white light. And it is his chief attribute in which every other attribute inheres. Because God is holy is perfect love. Because God is holy, he is perfect mercy. Because he is holy, he is perfect grace. He is perfect power. He is perfect knowledge and so on and so forth through all of the character attributes of God. God's holiness is that quality of God that makes him separate from every other created thing in this universe. We are separated from God because of our sin, and God is separated from us because of his holiness. So when worship is biblical, you and I will commune with a holy God. Now I wonder if that's what we really think about every time we get up in the morning. And I'm not just talking about on Sunday mornings, but I mean Monday through Saturday also. You see, you and I were created for the purpose of worshiping God, whether we worship him individually or whether we worship him corporately in this, in this collective area. And so you see, you worship God by the way you think. You worship God by the way you talk. You worship God by the way you walk. Does that reflect the holiness of God? But God is a holy God, and you and I are not to worship him rightly if we're not communing with him as a holy God. Someone said, if you really want to know what people think about God, watch how they worship him. Watch how they worship him. God, renew our passion for worship. That's, that should be our prayer. You are a holy God. 
Give us a fresh vision, God, of your holiness. Help us to focus on you and who you are. And because you are holy, that our lives need to reflect holiness. When worship is biblical, we'll commune with the holy God. But secondly, when worship is biblical, we will be contrite before a holy God. Look at what Isaiah, Isaiah's response to, to these four verses when he's talking about seeing God high and lifted up and his train filling the temple and, and the scene of the burning ones that are there worshiping him and the holiness of God. And then in verse 5, he says, Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone. Is that how we feel when we begin to worship God? When we walk into this building to worship corporately, do we feel, woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, when Isaiah encountered God's holiness, he saw his own sinfulness. And so when we, when we come into the presence of God to worship him, to be able to commune with him, we should be contrite before him because no matter how good we think we are, when we compare ourselves to the holiness of God, we see our ruin. <laughs> we see our sin. We should see ourselves undone. He saw his own sinfulness. He said, woe is me for I'm undone because I'm a man of unclean lips. And that was his way of saying, I'm not even worthy to speak a single word because I am, the pre am in the presence of the holiness of God and I know my heart. Isaiah could say, and it's not just me, we've all, we're all sinners. He said, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And Paul said it in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34? He said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaketh. Isaiah's heart is not clean. Because his heart is not clean, his lips are not clean. He cannot speak. Do you see, do you see his contrition here? When biblical, when worship is biblical, we will be contrite before a holy God. We will be broken before a holy God. We'll see ourselves as sinfulness when the pure white light of God's holiness shines upon us. Now, one thing about light, it has a way of revealing the imperfections, doesn't it? And Isaiah is saying, when I was, when I was confronted with the holiness of God, something happened in me. He said, I gazed upon his holiness and I was gripped by my own sinfulness. The pure white light of God's holiness revealed my imperfections. The same thing happened to Peter when, when, when he caught all of those fish, remember? And he said, go away from me, Lord. Why did he tell him to go away? He said, because I am a sinful man. When worship is bi biblical, that's what happens. 
when we commune with the holy God, we will be contrite before a holy God. You see, there's no room there for pride in our gathering together. And so we dare not come to a worship service with a scorecard in, us, in, in our hands. We dare not come into this building and sit down and smug, be smug in our pews and fold our arms and say, okay, preacher, move me today. We dare, dare not come with a scowl upon our face ready to rate everything that's going to happen inside of this building. If we do, we've missed the heart of worship. Because you see, it's not about you. It's not about me. It's all about God. And so when you, when you encounter the holiness of God, it breaks you. And it can happen while you are singing a song. It can happen while someone else is singing a special. It can happen when someone is praying. It can happen when someone is preaching. But it needs to happen for worship to be biblical. You and I enter into this place realizing our sinfulness. We come to worship the one true God. And we remember how we acted the previous week or maybe even that morning as we were driving to church with our family. We remember what we said. We remember what we thought. We remember the things that we did that we thought were in private and yet God's pure white light shines upon us and he reveals that sinfulness. We, we, we remember what we said even this morning and we are broken and we are contrite before God. You see, when, when worship is biblical, we will commune with the holy God and we will be contrite before a holy God. And then thirdly, we will wor when worship is biblical, we will be cleansed by a holy God. Contrition leads to cleansing. When we gaze upon God's holiness, we are gripped by our own sinfulness, and that leads to cleansing. It leads to the forgiveness of sin. And, and, and he says here in verses 6 and 7, Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thy iniquity is taken away from thee, and thy sins purged. So one of the seraphim flies over to Isaiah and touches his sinful lips with this live burning coal that has come off of the altar, and that action symbolizes the cleansing of God. He recognized the holy God. He was communing with holy God. He was contrite by holy God, and God cleansed him. And that action is the same thing that can happen in our life. The coal was taken from the very altar itself, the holy place where incense was burned and animal sacrifices were offered up for sin. And the seraph said, Lo, this has touched thy lip, and thy iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. So God's cleansing of Isaiah's sin through the seraphs, a beautiful foreshadowing for us of the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like Isaiah, we tremble in the presence of holy God. 
God is separate from us because of his holiness. And we are separate from God because of our own sinfulness. And we gaze upon his holiness and we are gripped by our own sinfulness. And we realize that we can bring nothing to God that would improve our condition. We are sinners through and through. And we may try to live a good life, but we still sin. We may try to be good people in our lives at work or good neighbors or good business people or our community leaders but we know all too well the inner recesses of our heart. And without the abundance and, and out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus says, the mouth speaks. We would cry out with Isaiah, woe is me for I am undone because I am a man of unclean lips. So how can I fix this problem of my sinfulness? Well, I can't. I can't fix it. I'm a sinner. Someone must fix the problem for me. And just as Isaiah received the atoning, forgiving, cleansing work that came from the seraph, so you and I must receive the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. When worship is biblical, we will commune with the holy God we will be contrite before a holy God. We will be cleansed by a holy God. And then finally, we will be committed to a holy God. Once we've been cleansed, we're ready to commit. Isaiah has been cleansed from his sin. So when God calls him, he's ready to go. And so in verse 8, also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. Do you notice the, the progression here? Confrontation with holiness leads to contrition, which leads to cleansing, which leads to commitment. I mean, there's a, there's a change that takes place here in the response of Isaiah from verse 5 to verse 8. In verse 5, Isaiah says, woe is me for I'm undone. And in verse 8, he said, here am I, send me. Something happened, something changed in his life. And that change took place because Isaiah had experienced God-given cleansing. And the thing that we need to understand and realize is that God can't really use us in a powerful way until we have experienced cleansing from sin. And I'm talking about something that is ongoing. You see, it's not just the one time having salvation, but each day, each moment, we need to experience the cleansing of a holy God because we are an unclean person. Every time we worship, we come before God and we receive his cleansing. That's why we can sing with Fanny Crosby, her hymn, Lord, here am I. Master, thou didst call, and this I reply, ready and willing. Lord, here am I. Someone said the world's greatest ability is availability. And when you think upon the fact that God has forgiven you of your sins, you want to serve him wherever he leads. You want to do that. You want to be involved in ministry. 
You want to you want to get involved in the in 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 the in the teams that that are here at church. You want, you don't want to just sit back and let somebody else do all of the work and and you just kind of watch as the show goes on. That's not what it's about. You say, here am I. You want to worship him through singing, through preaching, through teaching, through evangelism, through ministry to others. And if you don't want to serve the Lord, it may be because you never experienced the forgiveness of a holy God. Because when Isaiah experienced that, he said, here am I. Send me. Here am I. Use me. Whatever you want, Lord, I'm ready. And that should be our heart's desire as we learn to worship a holy God. Let's pray. You have been listening to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. We hope this message was a blessing and encouragement to you. If you would like more messages, visit our website at fbcclarklake.org, where all of our messages can be downloaded for free. Also, you can subscribe to the Fellowship Baptist Church Sermon Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. All of our messages are available for free. If you want to keep up to date on what's going on at Fellowship, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, where you can see what's happening happening at Fellowship Baptist Church. If you'd like to visit us, Fellowship Baptist Church is located at 3200 Reed Road, Clark Lake, Michigan. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope to see you back here again next time.